Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stanford Center for South Asia podcast. I am Lalita Duperan, Associate Director. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and of course, like us on Facebook. I am joined today by Mejigan Masumi, who is a PhD candidate in the history department here at Stanford studying modern Afghanistan. Mejigan's dissertation explores Afghan engagement with the global communication technology of the radio, primarily during the 60s and 70s. A few weeks ago, I produced a podcast with Asfandi Amir, whose research is on security and international relations of South Asia and Pakistan and Afghanistan in particular. And I'm delighted today to return to that region through the medium of radio. It feels mildly ironic or perhaps ahistorical to be producing a podcast about the radio, but nevertheless, that's what we are doing. Mejigan, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Lalita. It's a pleasure. Can you um, start us off by telling us what, what we listened to as we came into the podcast? Sure, of course. That was a clip uh, entitled Laili Laili uh, by Afghanistan's most uh, famous, one of the most famous singers, uh, Ahmad Zoyer. And I believe we'll be learning a lot more about him later, and I look forward to that. But let's zoom out a little, big picture. You are a graduate student in the Department of History and also this year's Center for South Asia WISH Fellow. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you became interested in the history of South Asia? Absolutely. Um, so there's a beautiful tradition of storytelling that resonates throughout the region, and Afghans are definitely no exception to this. <clears throat> Excuse me. I grew up with stories being narrated to me about my family history, and those stories taught me something so profound that's really kind of stayed with me until today. And that's that people are much more connected than the creation of borders and nationalism would like us to believe. I mean, long before I learned about you know, methods of history that argue this precise point, I learned about my grandmother, an Afghan who was born and raised in Kashmir and migrated to Kabul, mm -hmm. and my grandfather, who was a merchant that frequented India often for business. And my immediate family, including myself, um, we journeyed through half a dozen countries before arriving to America. Right. So the stories that were narrated to me in different languages and the experiences they described made me, very, it made me understand very early on in life that I belong to more of the world than my passport or politics would like me to believe. Um, you know, when I uh, started my undergraduate um, uh, education, college was really ripe with the opportunity to explore this. And I became, uh, I began to become more interested um, in literature from the region. And that eventually inspired me to study it and take on history as a profession. 
It's, it's an amazing, I, I love um, the kind of very personal that you bring uh, to that kind of academic trajectory um, and that you bring in family. So uh, many of us are um, kind of, I don't want to say stuck at home, but we're in quarantine, <laughs> we're sheltering in place. Of course, we're privileged to be able to work from home. I want to absolutely recognize that. But nevertheless, the pressure of work combined with family commitments can be a lot. How have you been coping with the stay-at-home orders uh, in place? I believe you have a family. What are some of the challenges you faced during this pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, As you've said, Lolita, it's been a difficult transition for many, I think, if not all, I think across the board, research and productivity for many of us has been halted or produced at much lower rates. So that's one thing. But as a graduate student with a young family, um, I've had to reinvent myself as a kindergarten teacher. Um, and yeah. that occupies most of, my, um, most of my time now that would have been dedicated to um, finishing up dissertation writing. Um, my partner, um, uh, is on the front lines. Um, he works in hospital operations and is currently helping um, hospitals um, uh, procure their staffing needs through this pandemic. Um, so he's really um, bogged down and um, incredibly busy and stressed um, through everything. But nonetheless, we are um, we're trying to stay afloat. Uh, um, as best as we can through all of this. Um, last week, um, we celebrated my um, uh, my son's birthday. He turned six years old, <laughs> and we congratulations. Had a- <laughs> it must have been quite different. <laughs> Thank you. We had a social distance social distancing sort of birthday parade for him um, outside, and it was nice. But you know, of course, it's still hard for him to wrap his brain around the fact that he can't get too close to people um, right now. So it's been a challenge of sorts. Um, We're all doing the best that we can. It will be hard for a six-year-old to really understand social distancing. It seems to be hard for grown-ups. So um, I (laughs) thank you also to your partner for working on the front lines. I imagine that's very challenging as well. So thank you. Um, What's what's happening in Afghanistan? Are you in touch uh, with people there? What is the situation with COVID in Afghanistan? Sure. Um, As much as I can understand from people on the ground and local media, it's unfortunately a really dire situation, Lita. Um, Just yesterday, there were people protesting outside the Iranian consulate in Herat province over the deaths of migrants who were drowned after allegedly being forced into a river by Iranian border guards. Um, Now, there's some investigations happening to determine if this is like actually true. But I bring up this example because it really illustrates the catastrophe the outbreak of the virus has caused. So there's millions of Afghan refugees that live and work in Iran. And many of them had to return to Afghanistan after the coronavirus outbreak because Iran was badly hit. Right. Work halted for them, and unfortunately, they couldn't get, you know, any sort of medical attention there. So they come back to Afghanistan via Herat, and many of these people unknowingly have the virus. And so they're turning back to the country, and Herat becomes the epicenter of the coronavirus in Afghanistan. Um, Meanwhile... Herat has closed down the city due to the virus, and you know these people can't get any jobs to 
to sustain their livelihoods. So as restrictions have begun to ease in Iran and the economy is like really slowly starting to pick up again there, some, of, some Afghans have decided to try their luck and return back to Iran for work, but they get caught at the border and they end up dead after drowning in a river. Um, and I think, you know, the virus arrived to Af at Afghanistan at a really incredibly precarious moment. And I think, you know, on the last uh, podcast, Asfandiar explained this to us very well. Um, the current political situation in Afghanistan amidst COVID-19 with a government that is in flux between two presidents, a Taliban peace deal that isn't really here or there. Right. I mean, this, this morning there were attacks claimed by the Taliban in Nangahar province and in Kabul's Shia neighborhood, Dashtabarchi, where a maternity ward was bombed and casualty, casualties caused to mothers and babies. I saw that. It was absolutely yeah. heartbreaking. Oh, it, I have no words. Um, you know, there's also the question of American support on the line and, you know, people on the ground who are simply trying to survive. And of course, all of this through the holy month of Ramadan. Right. So Lalita, it's a really, really difficult situation. And like many communities right now um, throughout the world, Afghans are trying to support one another through this pandemic and distributing food and medicine when and where they can. But I'm really not sure how long that will sustain. Thank you for sharing this, uh, these very difficult stories with us. And um, those of you listening who are more interested are also interested in uh, the political side that was discussed a few weeks back in the podcast with Asfandi Armir. You'll find it at southasia.stanford.edu, which is, uh, there's a media button and all the podcasts are there and you can go back and listen to those. Mejgan, um, if I may, I'd like to... Um, move the conversation to your dissertation. I'm curious about it and I want to definitely hear more music, which I believe is an option. Uh, so the title of your dissertation is The Sounds of Kabul, Radio, Ahmed Zahir and the Politics of Popular Culture in Afghanistan, 1960-1979. One of those titles that rolls off the tongue like all PhD titles, <laughs> but at least it's very descriptive. We know exactly what we're up against. But what I do not know is, uh, who is Ahmed Zahir and why is he important for the radio and popular culture? Sure. So Ahmed Zahir is one, if not the most iconic figures of Afghan musical life. Um, he was the son of a court doctor and former prime minister, Dr. Abdul Zahir. And his popularity came to rise at the same time that the radio was expanding its reach outside of Kabul. So just a little bit on the history of the radio here. Um, what originally started out as Radio Kabul permeated from the capital city in the in early 1920s as a state-run enterprise yeah. under King Amanullah Khan. But it, it wasn't really until the 1960s that it would reach the whole of the country and beyond um, internationally. And its name was changed to Radio Afghanistan. Um, the radio also became the center for the patronage and promotion of new popular music um, that was suitable for radio broadcasting. And Ahmad Zoyer was a pivotal figure in this regard, um, having traveled widely, becoming exposed to the burgeoning musical revolution of the 1960s in Europe and America, getting exposure to the Beatles and the likes of Elvis, as well as South Asia, getting exposed to the, to the music of uh, Bollywood playback singers, um, Central Asia, the Middle East. Um, Incredible. Yeah, these varied musical 
influences mm-hmm. led him to forge an entirely sort of different musical style that mixed Western and Eastern elements. Um, I mean, he introduced the accordion to the Afghan musical repertoire. Um, he oh, wow. Him, <laughs> it's really, really amazing. And I mean, accordion mixed with rabab and tabla and harmonium. Um, he, and we'll, we'll hear this in a bit in some samples I'll play for you. Um, he often sang songs, um, uh, 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 sang covers of Bollywood songs, and he collaborated with popular musicians and poets throughout the broader region. Um, a sample of a cover of a song he sang is from an Indian film score, um, uh, and it, the title of the song is Me Shair to Nahin from the popular 1973, uh, 1973 film Bhabi. Mm-hmm. Um, and in memory of Rishi Kapoor, who right. passed away. <laughs> I thought that this might be an appropriate um, choice to sample. Um, so Fantastic. I think so that for us right now. Down, I'm going to mute myself and uh, see how that goes. Thank you. Just getting the sound working here. This is all new territory for us doing this. cover of um uh of this amazing everlasting evergreen bollywood um tune um from the film bobby and i think that you know it it that song is iconic not just in afghanistan but in the entire subcontinent another song i have to say that um he popularized amongst afghans um, and, and it's a it's a very eclectic choice. Um, is Chal 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 Merisati from uh-huh. the movie Hati Merisati? Uh-huh. Um, and I I have a, a really amazing clip of that that was recorded at a concert that he gave in the seventies. Um, and you know you can hear the announcer announcing the song and the cheer of the audience um, as he's about to perform this song. So I'll. Where was the concert, Mejgan? It's at the Kabul Nandori Art Theater, um, and it, right, wow. yeah, right in downtown Kabul at the Fantastic. time. Fantastic. Let's hear it. Let's do it. Sure. Just getting our clip organized there. Everybody hold tight. It's coming. 
very soon. It'll be worth the wait, I'm sure. Here we go. Wale tawajuk ni bayak khandani ke bayak khandani Hindi chal chal mere saath. That was amazing, especially as you said the, the the cheers when it was announced. And what what inspired you to work on on this particular topic? I have a little muting issue here. Unmute yourself. Pardon here me. we go. Let's go back. So, what inspired you to work on this topic? Sure. So, a number of different things. I think uh, the first part of this is about. Uh, for me, the attraction of it was um, learning about a time period that my family remembered incredibly fondly. Mm. And again, going back to the stories narrated to me, that Afghanistan, um, that Kabul was not something that I was hearing about um, or reading about in any of my history books. Um, I wasn't seeing images um, in the media at all that reflected the vibrancy, the cosmopolitanism, um, the innovations, the experimentation, um, and you know the the vibrant life um, that was narrated to me um, through family stories. Um, and so, the more that I spoke to people, the more that I realized that a connecting thread for them was memories attached to sound and to music. And Ahmad Zayer um, was like a common theme. Um, stories kept uh, reverberating back to him. And that's what inspired me to kind of dig a little bit more um, about him. And what I found through, through sort of digging more and learning about his life and his contributions to Afghan music is that radio played um, a really pivotal role in helping this um, star come to rise and changing the face of um, Afghan pop music. Um, so I would say that's what kind of um, sort of brought me to this topic. And, you know, um, I have to say that um, his life story is very interesting. You know, he, he unfortunately dies in 1979 at a very young age. Mm -hmm. He's only 33. Wow. Um, and it's, it's the same year, 1979, that Afghanistan mm. transitions to a communist republic. Right. And in subsequent decades, we know what happens. Everything descends into chaos. But what's really interesting about studying Ahmad Zaire in this time frame is that his life and professional career as a musician 
really offer to tell us a nuanced history where amongst a host of critical issues surrounding politics, race and class, poverty and privilege, the theme of love runs supreme. Mm. Yes, I said love, Lolita. <laughs> Afghans love love songs. And Ahmad Zayer was a master at singing them. He was unabashed and very explicit in these songs and even used the poetry of Iranian feminists, including um, the famed Farooq Farooq Saad and Simina Behbehani, to express these sentiments. Um, in one of his ballads, he sings, Hanoz bar labeman, joy bosahoy tuhast, which roughly translates to, Your kisses still remain on my lips. Um, some of the people like these lyrics. Some people were deeply offended by these lyrics. And for a lot of people, this was an expression of freedom, of uninhibited emotion, not draped in a metaphor. And the medium of song really allowed people to discuss taboo subjects, right? And in this song, you know, the, the suggestion that a man and a woman are having an intimate moment, um, and, you know, this, this man is taking the words of, um, a feminist poet and projecting this on to uh, the, the broadcast speakers to a large audience. It's very, very provocative. I can imagine. Um, yeah. Lilita, you know, I, I bring up the, this point about love in particular because I think the subjects of popular culture and love have been highly trivialized in the academy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we need to decenter our thoughts here and actually give attention to the, to the complexity they reveal. I mean, you know, for a country and a part of the world that has been the victim of every kind of negative stereotype and orientalist claim, mm -hmm. you know, Afghanistan has, is the graveyard of empires. We're the unruly Pathans. We're the Islamic fundamentalists. We are the oppressors of women. Cutting across this and looking to music, looking to poetry, looking to pop culture, we see a society that, it, that in all its contradictions and complexity embraces love and celebrates love. Um, you know, from the young college kid hanging out at Kabul University to the mullah in the mosque who enjoys his music, um, Ahmad Zayer re represents the complexity of Afghan identities and, you know, the multiple possibilities they represent, you know. Um, and I think it's important for us to pause for a minute and humanize a people and a culture that the world has essentially dehumanized. Because when we imagine a place devoid of a history or a culture of art or radio and music, it, it makes it that much more justifiable to bomb and destroy. So I would argue that this discussion is very much a dire one to have for Afghanistan. Mm. Afghans have been at the forefront of mass culture as producers of music and performance and art, and their contributions should not be discounted as novelty. These people were pioneers and their sounds reached far and wide in the region. And in Zoyer's case, the world in 2010, I believe it was, NPR um, uh, put him on the list of the 50 greatest voices. Um, so Amazing. Well, you, you speak um, uh, passionately, I think is the word I'm looking for. And, and I appreciate that so much. I think the... Um, 
uh, the single story, I guess, quote unquote, that we get, uh, and as Fandia and I talked about this as well, the, the single story about Afghanistan in particular and South Asia as well, uh, is uh, it, it's, it's difficult to negotiate uh, in, in one's mind. Um, however, um, I even having a kind of a broad uh, an, uh, awareness of, of the complexity of the region, I wasn't quite expecting feminist uh, lyrics to come mm -hmm. into uh, Ahmed Zahir's uh, work. Can you say a little more? I mean, was that even shocking for his immediate kind of community or how did that happen? Sure. You know, um, Ahmad Zahir was um, a figure that um, was very interested in knowing what was happening around the world and being plugged into um, conversations um, about uh, progress, about innovations in music, innovations in poetry. He was looking for material to bring to his music and new material to bring to the Afghans. Having said that, um, Afghanistan has uh, unfortunately a high rate of illiteracy. And so most people listening to these lyrics didn't know, they couldn't recognize that this is the poetry of Simina Behbehani or Farooq Farooq Saad. However, there, there was a growing intelligentsia um, and a, 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 a growing population of um, educated Afghans who immediately recognized this work um, and were responding to it um, in, in very positive ways and some in very negative ways. As I mentioned, you know, he had um, mixed reviews. Um, but for the most part, he was creating complex conversations in this society. And I think that's what his point was. Um, looking back now at his legacy and um, his musical repertoire um, and how much he produced and what he was producing, um, he wanted to disrupt um, and shake uh, and experiment with sound and lyrics. And he did it really well. I'm I'm so glad you are doing uh, the work you are doing. You you mentioned literacy. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it feels like the radio is old fashioned, but also uh, even here in the United States, still incredibly relevant. I I actually get most of my information from the radio. I, I love listening to news analyses, mm -hmm. and we always listen to the radio in the car, um, either music or news, depending on which family member uh, mm -hmm. is in control of the station selection. But um, in contemporary Afghanistan, what, what is the role of the radio? Is it still a popular mode of communication and information sharing? Absolutely. I'd say it remains as more than um, television or the internet. Um, you know, uh, the radio reaches far more ears um, and far more people um, than any of these other mediums that are honestly quite expensive for um, Afghans to own. The radio itself is an expensive uh, technology still in many villages um, in many parts um, for Afghans to own. I mean, in Bamyan, there's still the town crier that will go into the town and um, recite the news for the day um, or, you know, recite uh, the, the, the prices of meat that's very important for people because that tells them about um, where the economy, how the economy is doing. 
um, things of that nature. So um, it's still incredibly prevalent. I would say it's the the number one source of information and news and entertainment that um, most people in the country go to um, and get and receive. I I, I understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, Going to uh, the kind of academic understanding of what, what the study of history means or is i i did my phd and then postdoctoral research on the song texts of art music in north india um Mm -hmm. sometimes or maybe even often uh, to the disbelief of both musicians and musicologists who just did not think that song texts were a topic worthy of academic research um i had some interesting conversations over the years uh both in the in the united kingdom where i was and in india as well um music and sound are typically thought of uh, as non-traditional sources for uh, historians. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know, is oral history still considered a kind of, you know, not quite history history, or have we shifted on that? Um, tell me more. Sure. Um, you know, Lalita, this is a really interesting question, and I think that when we consider how other disciplines, for example, anthropologists who have been using oral history as a right. method of research, um, you know, historians were among, amongst the last to jump on the mm-hmm. oral history train. And, um, you know, on the question of what is proper history, I think this is just another term for the kinds of record of events rendered from a hegemonic discourse. You know, oral history came up as a challenge to that. And since the 1990s, scholars from different disciplines, especially Marxist historians, increasingly challenged the dependence on textual sources as a way to understand the non-Western world um, uh, uh, and the past, um, to record the voice of the people or to write a history from below. Um, And it was methodologically attractive because it was a challenge to the grain of master narratives produced by written sources like government documents and elite court court chronicles. Um, So oral history reflects not just a Marxian turn in historiography. It also, I think, is a barometer of the turn towards cultural and effective ways of thinking about our pasts. in um, sort of my, my own work, um, for me, looking at the history of radio in Afghanistan through oral histories um, and, you know, through song lyrics and sound um, represents a crucial point of view because it, it allows me to contest the dominant discourse of the advent and evolution of certain oral technologies in the non-Western world, right? So the history of the radio would have been very easy for me to write from the point of view of the state, Um, you know? And of course, considered as one of the most stereotypically backward regions of the world, my oral history of Afghanistan constructs the unique history of sound in this region. Um, I suggest that radio-generated forms of cross-regional sonic solidarities that was unprecedented in the history of technology in Western countries. And, you know, there, there is a growing body of literature on the use of sound in historical narratives in the non-Western world. And I think historians of Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia have made some strong contributions on how we might understand global phenomena like decolonization movements through a study of sound. Yeah. Um, for example, scholars like Liz Gunner and Marissa Mormon look at 
how broadcast music in Africa contributed to resisting colonialism. And then, you know, you have Ziad Bahmi and Andrea Stanton that have examined sound in the Middle East, looking at histories of the radio in Egypt and Palestine, respectively. And then um, Isabel uh, Huakuja Halanho has written on radio stations in India and Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Germany, um, arguing that radio is best understood through language groups rather than national or regional borders. So my hope is really to contribute to this growing body of literature and make the case for studying Afghan history through the Sounded Archive. Thank you. I'm glad you brought up um, Isabel Wakua Alonso's work because she, she actually gave a talk at Stanford when we still had <laughs> a yeah. campus talks and, uh, and her work definitely connects to yours. So I'm glad you also uh, made that link. Um, looking to wrap up um, our conversation today, uh, I think you've already touched upon this, but nevertheless, I wanted to ask you a, a little bit more about how, maybe you can kind of give it a succinct mm -hmm. final statement about um, how your work uh, is going to enhance our understanding of contemporary South Asia. Sure. Um, you know, I think that the contributions of my research are twofold, and I'm trying to do two distinct things. Um, first, I really am trying to promote an understanding of Afghanistan that's not mired in a narrative about war and violence. And I think my work um, offers a reflection on topics that are seemingly out of place for a war-torn country. Music, radio, the arts, along with their social lives, capture, in my opinion, the most vibrant parts of cultural life and reveal a past that was deeply engaged with innovations in technology that allowed for cultural exchange, um, the creation of transnational relationships, and the promotion of, you know, the music of Afghanistan and, and culture to the world. Um, and I, you know, I think that historical silences are going to be maintained through notions of difference right. that continue to make it seem odd to associate sound and music and communication technology to a part of the world that's been the subject of conflict and repression and religious extremism. Um, so I hope that my work is a contribution to challenge these conventional histories that view Afghanistan as a static society. Um, now the, on the question specifically um, to South Asia, you know, I, I hope that my research will contribute to a better understanding of the region by recollecting a history of interconnectedness, coexistence, and collaboration that dates back way further than my time period, the 20th century. Um, we know that South Asia that exists today is a recent construct, and it created imagined borders and separations between people and places. Um, my work tells a different story. It tells the story of Afghan musicians and producers of art and culture who collaborated and performed with artists from present-day India and Pakistan and circulated their music throughout South Asia and beyond. Um, and I think by studying music and poetry in particular, my work recalls more than thousand years, thousands and thousands of years of textual history and even more in material and cultural memory that connects people, places, and really everyday lives across space and time. 
I don't want to put an enormous amount of pressure on you in these very challenging times to hurry up, finish and get it out there. <laughs> but um, I think uh, I, I can't wait to, to read the final result. And I think it's going to be a massively important contribution to our understanding of the region. Thank you so much for the work you are doing. And thank you for joining me uh, in the podcast today. I know uh, life is difficult right now, so I wish you all the luck in the world with uh, your dissertation, with childcare, with quarantine, um, with worrying about your family in various places. This, these are difficult times, and uh, it's really very generous of you to have joined us today. Thank you so much, Lalita, for giving me the opportunity to share um, and for, uh, to the CSA for always being um, and encouraging and wonderful part um, of my Stanford experience. Um, and I look forward to listening to all the other podcasts to come. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have uh, hopefully a lot more podcasts coming. We're enjoying doing this series. We're getting very good feedback. Uh, all the podcasts and all the information you might want about the Center for South Asia are on southasia.stanford.edu. I have been Lalita Duperon, and I look forward to welcoming you back uh, soon. Bye. -bye.